today's sermons, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now we started this exciting series and we're actually going to get into the very first part of 1st Thessalonians and we're going to talk about Paul's introduction to his letter. He's going to say, thank you, Lord. I think we should take more time out of our busy schedule to say thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the hustle and the bustle and to spend so much time doing so many different things that we sometimes forget about the Lord. And I know I struggle myself to do that, just to stop and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the blessings. Thank you for everything. So you know what? If you haven't done that in a while, just pause the tape and, and just go out and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything that you've done for me. My name's Reverend Derek Gilder. I'm a pastor at McKees Mills Baptist Church. And I want to say, Thank you, Lord Jesus, for absolutely everything. You know what the truth is, is that we have so many blessings in our lives. We should be filled with gratitude. The truth is, it's quite easy for us to say, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for my good health. Who doesn't want to have good health? And when you have it, that's a blessing for sure. And when you got food on your table, it's really nice to stop and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I do have food because there's a lot of people. Too many people in this world that don't have food at all. And here I have all this food in abundance. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that I have a beautiful, wonderful family that loves me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. There are so many things that we should say thankful for. But I think that if we got in front of our own gravestone, what truly would we say thanks for? I'm not saying those things aren't important. Yes, it's nice to have a nice family, good health, and... It's nice to have prosperity and money, absolutely. But what are the things that we should truly be thankful for? If we're going to be standing by our gravesite, what perspective should we ultimately have? What should our thanksgiving be all based on? I got thinking when we enter the church each week. What perspective do we have when we greet one another, when we sit back and say, you know what, I am so glad that you are here. What are we truly thankful for when we come in there? We know ultimately some of the things that are here today and gone tomorrow, we should be thankful for them. But isn't there more? Isn't there something else that we should be thankful for? And I think we should look through God's eyes at our lives and say, Lord, what should I be thankful for? Eternal life. What should I be thankful for, Lord? I am a redeemed masterpiece of your grace. What should I be thankful for? I've been forgiven. These are wonderful and beautiful things that last forever. Jesus Christ ultimately tells us that we're supposed to keep our eyes fixed upon him. We're supposed to greet each another as brothers and sisters in Christ, build each other up in the faith. We're supposed to let our church family shine for love for God and love for one another. These are the core and the foundations of the things that we should be focusing on. And the question, though, becomes, do you love God? Do you love the people that you meet? Do you love all individuals? Do you walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul's sitting, he's writing to this church, Thessalonica. Now, he wasn't there very long. He was only there for approximately three weeks. He preached three times in the synagogue, and he preached a little bit in the marketplace. But beyond that, he had to leave because, of course, a mob formed and they wanted to get rid of him. And here Paul is writing to this church that is formed and he really hasn't met them that long. And he's trying to tell them, I thank God for all of you. And he wants to tell them why he thanks God for them. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. When we get before the Lord, 
I am so thankful for the work that all of the individuals inside the church do that is produced by faith. And that's the first thing Paul says. You are doing fantastic, marvelous, and wonderful things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am thankful that you are doing those things. I got thinking it's normally customary in any letter of that particular time in, in the ancient Grecian times. When you write a letter, usually people would start off and they would say, well, I am really thankful for you and I'm praying for your, you know, your good health and I'm praying that you got lots of money and you got lots of food. That's how most of the letters started out in ancient Greece. But I got thinking Paul goes completely opposite that. He says, I'm not going to focus on your material things. What am I truly thankful for? I'm thankful that you love Jesus. I'm thankful that you're born again. I'm thankful you're in God's family. That's what Paul really wants to start off with. And it says, ultimately, in Scripture, Paul says this, as a nursing mother taking care of her own children, I'm writing you this story. Like a father with his children, I'm telling you that I love you dearly. Paul tells the church that he, Sylvanus, and Timothy have been praying without ceasing for the church. In other words, they're concerned for them. They're sitting back saying, I want God to reign in your hearts and reign in the world. And I want him, I want you to express your love towards him for everybody. Well, Paul, ultimately, when he says this, he's not saying that, you know what, I'm always praying for you. I often wonder about that verse when it says, Paul says, I pray without ceasing. Is he saying I'm praying absolutely all the time? The answer is no. But I like to think that he's saying, ultimately, that he prayed exactly like the way the Lord did. The Lord arised before dawn, it says in Scripture, and he went off to pray, Mark 135. And he prayed passionately for the people around him. Also, it says he would pray long into the night, the Lord Jesus Christ would. And I think Paul did the same thing. When he had time, he prayed with earnesty. He prayed with honesty. He prayed with love for the people that God basically said, you know what, I want you to tell them about me. He prayed for them. His intercessory prayer was not focused on petitioning God, but rather Paul sat back and said, I thank God for you. I thank God that you are born again. I thank the Lord for all of you. And this is what he focused on. Now I got wondering, how many times do we pray to God and we ask him for things? We all do it. Usually it's most of our prayers. Lord, may you give me this, 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 and this. Lord, I need this, 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 and this. But how much time do we spend praying for other people? How many times we just simply pray to God and say, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for all my blessings. And I can think Paul commemorates all of them. And he says, I thank God that the work you've been doing based on your faith and out of love and out of your patience, because you're all going through persecution, he says, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ that you're faithful. I think that's awesome. I thank you. It was a clear expression outwardly of the faith they had inside. Paul said, you actually do love God and you are serving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in everything that you do. It's demonstrated ultimately through your acts of love, Paul says, and they're stunning and everybody in the region's hearing about them. Undeniably, I can see that you are born again because you have changed your lives. You've walked away from all those idols and you've sat back and said, I just want to serve the Lord. Whatever the cost might be, I'm all in. And I think that's beautiful. By engaging in arduous, strenuous, and exhaustive acts of love, I think the Thessalonians basically said, I'm going to tell you and the world 
I love Jesus. They showed their love to the world, which was great. Having learned sacrificial love from their father, they were able to take the persecution and they would say, you know what? I'll take it, but I won't give hatred back to you. I'll give you all love. Too bad our world wouldn't do more of that today. That would be certainly stunning. And I got thinking to myself, the greatest decision you ever made in your life is to be born again. Remember that time when you got down on your hands and knees and you said, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me for my sins. You know, come into my heart. Make, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to be restored. I, I want to know you. I want to serve you, Lord Jesus Christ. I love you. Please forgive me. You know, when you made that decision, that was the best decision you ever made and the greatest by a long shot in your entire life. The truth is, is that the wages of sin is death and Jesus came and he basically, he took you out of the clutches of death itself because you believed in him and he atoned for you and he made you whole and new again. And that was a beautiful and glorious day when your eyes were open and your ears heard the truth of the gospel message and those seeds, those seeds that somebody else planted of righteousness in your heart, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of you and you became a Christian. That is a wonderful day. The truth sets you free. Have you told the world this? Have you been out there telling the world what wonderful and great things the Lord Jesus Christ has done in your life? The Thessalonians were doing this, and Paul was saying, I thank God for that. Are you doing the same? I want to go on to point number two. Paul said, I am thankful God chose you. I love that. I love that. God chose you. Of all the people in the world, God looked at you and said, I want you to know me. He chose you. This is really important. The wording that Paul has used here, it wouldn't escape the people of the time. The truth is, is that there's an expression of gratitude was really stunning. In the language that was only reserved for Israel, Paul said, God chose you. God, God chose Abraham. God chose him to be a mighty nation. God chose Israel. And that was God's chosen nation. And now Paul turns around and he says, oh, by the way, you as a people, Thessalonica, you are chosen by God. You are God's people. Don't forget that. Talk about it. things for rejoicing. What They must have been excited about this. Paul states his brothers and sisters in Christ were chosen in exactly the same way as Israel. They needed to rejoice because the truth is, is that they were on fire for the Lord. Very much so. They were won over by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin, and they gave their heart to him wholeheartedly. Paul says, I thank God that I didn't arrive, me and Timothy and, and Sylvanus, we didn't arrive like the other people did. Well, I explain that. In ancient Greece, you were called, you usually relied on rhetoric um, arguments, or in other words, you were an orator. You were somebody that was incredibly gifted in speech. A lot of people would actually follow you. And Paul says, I didn't come to you with clever words. I didn't come with you with this great and wonderful speech that sounded so beautiful that it just knocked your socks off, so to speak. Paul said, I came to you with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted you to go from death to life. It wasn't relying on my hollow words. No, it was relying on my words that were enabled through the Holy Spirit to be the breath of life. He's saying to them, ultimately, the words sunk into your heart because they were not mine. They were God's words. And what a difference those words certainly made. Well, based on secular wisdom, ultimately, salvation in a crucified Savior didn't make a whole lot of sense, did it? 
You know, here you have this this particular area, Thessalonica, and, and the other week we learned that this place, Thessalonica, had a whole bunch of foreign gods. And for you to have somebody come in and say, oh, by the way, there's but one god, all these Roman gods don't exist, will be highly offensive. And if you're going to follow oh, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to get rid of all those foreign gods, that wouldn't be very popular in your city. So here you have the situation that there was no reason for the Thessalonians, no good reason, I guess I should say secular reason, to sit back and say yes to Jesus. They said yes because they were convicted. Christ died once and for all. They believed that. Christ atoned for their sins. They believed that. They were accepted into God's family because of their belief in his atoning sacrifice. The profound conviction that they had changed and modified their lives in ways that the other people were absolutely stunned around them. They opted for only one God. Now, we learned the other week, too, as well. The people in this Roman area, they used to go out and have sex with multiple people. Even when they were married, they would go out and have sex with prostitutes and sex with same couples, and, and they were very open with their bodies. And, and these people of Thessalonica, they, they heard what Paul told them, and he said, abstain from all sex, all sex, except for in the marriage. Keep your marriage bed pure. And they said, yes, we'll do that. Can you imagine the sacrifice they had made? Because everybody in society look at them and say, you know what, you're not very good Roman citizens. You're supposed to be having sex with everybody. Why aren't you? And they're saying, no, we believe in but one God, and we're going to keep our marriage beds pure. You can see how unpopular that would be. That's still unpopular today. Well, they may have witnessed numerous miracles that happened, and I think they probably did from Apostle Paul. It was the words of God. Those words actually went right into their hearts, and as a result of it, the Holy Spirit convicted them with the words of God, and they said, yes. I believe. I want to believe with all my heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they did, and they became born again. This is what Paul's thankful for. He's thankful for all of this. John MacArthur said this, Faith does not come by merely hearing those words of truth. For if truth spoken is not accompanied by the power of God, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. But when empowered by God as it enters the prepared soul, the gospel truth saves. And I agree 100% with them. Yes, they heard the gospel truth. The Spirit convicted them, and they said, yes, Lord Jesus Christ. I got thinking there was a cartoonist there, and you've often seen it, where you have the little Cupid, and the, and the Cupid's got the arrow, and he's about to basically put a dart in somebody, and all of a sudden they're going to fall in love with somebody else, supposedly. This is not the way it happens with the Lord Jesus Christ at all. That's not what it's about at all. You know what the truth is, is that God is certainly not cubit, but what does happen when God taps us on the shoulder, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, ultimately we become alive. We come to understand God's holy word. We come to get a glimmer of that beautiful light and we sit back and say, you know what, when God shoots an arrow into humanity, his love, his grace and his mercy, we bow to him and say, my sovereign God, I finally met you. This is great. And then we say, Lord, come into my heart. And the question I have for you, has God pierced your heart with his word? Do you believe in him? Are you born again? Are you part of his family? There is no other decision in life that is any more important than that. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Paul said to the church of Thessalonica, I'm very thankful that you believe. And then Paul goes on, he says, the next thing I'm thankful for is that you have learned to imitate the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have done that. Now, when I talk about imitation, 
in contemporary society, we typically view imitation as superficial. You know, have you ever imitated somebody? You know, even somebody you don't really like. And when they're doing things that you sit back and say, I don't think I'd ever do that. But you imitate them anyway just to poke fun at them. This is not what Paul's talking about when he talks about imitation. Often the imitation that people do in society lacks authenticity. Often we just imitate people because we want something out of them instead of truly loving them and wanting to be near them. In ancient times, if you emulated a teacher, it meant that not only did you like the teacher, but ultimately you agreed with the teachings of the teacher and you wanted to learn all those teachings and obey them too as well. Their character ultimately reflected any apostle, any speaker, any teacher. It would be reflected upon how the students thought about you. And I got thinking, you know what, Paul's sitting back saying, without a book to follow, and the Thessalonians didn't have the Bible to follow, they had the Old Testament but nothing else, what were they supposed to do? And Paul said, imitate me. I met the Lord. I imitate the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, I want you to imitate him in a way that's filled with complete love. And that's what he's saying. And I got thinking about that. Their imitation came at a huge cost. Now, last week we talked a little bit about gods. <clears throat> and we said Rome had lots of them, had so many gods, a pantheon of gods, so many that you can't even count them all. And I got thinking, if you're going to go as a Thessalonican and you're going to believe in but one God, aren't you inviting all sorts of persecution upon your head? In the Bible, it says this, chance happens to everyone. Absolutely. Chance does. Okay, fair enough. That means good things happen to good people, but bad things happen to good people too. And if something bad happens to you, who are you going to blame? We're going to blame the person who's offending the gods. And that's what happened with the Romans. They sat back and said, you know what? My crops didn't do very good. And I was praying to the God for the harvest and it didn't happen. And my crops failed. Well, why did my crops fail? That's because the Christians don't like my God. They don't even pray to my God. They don't believe my God exists. That's the reason why my crops failed. Or you're sitting back saying, I want to have a child, so I pray to the goddess of love, and I want to have fertility, and I want to have many children, but I haven't had any. Why have I haven't had any children? Because the Christians don't believe in the goddess of love. And they got blamed for absolutely everything. Now, here's the thing. When I say persecution, I'm ultimately not talking about, and we often think of persecution as being chains or rotting in a prison or ultimately have lions tearing you apart. I'm not talking about that kind of persecution. But certainly, they faced persecution that was incredibly fierce by everyone. Everyone. All throughout the area. So you can see Thessalonica at the top of the map. Towards the bottom, you've got Archaea and Athens. Everybody was persecuted because they didn't like what the Thessalonians were teaching. They were saying, there's one God, and we should be blameless, righteous, and pure in the sight of that one God. We should not be bowing down to the emperor or any of the Roman gods. We should only be bowing down to the Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, and God the Father in heaven. That is it. And, of course, everybody didn't like that message. And they got persecuted severely. People would look at them and ostracize them. They would not employ them. They'd sit back and say, we'll find any way we can to make your life as bad as we possibly can because we don't like you. We think that you are enemies. They even went as far as to say, you're atheist. You don't believe in the gods, so you're atheist. You don't believe in gods. Well, they believed in but one god, but they couldn't see beyond that. They said, you must be atheist. The fact that their joy and peace was not dependent on what other people did, 
but dependent on what the Lord Jesus Christ had already done for them was profound. It had made a huge impact upon the world around them. What a profound testimony they had to every single person who came within the port of Thessalonica. And we talked about this other week. They had this massive port. And there were thousands of people going in that port all the time and back out again. They had another spot at the top of the map. You can see it, the Ignatian Way. It was a highway in Rome that basically connected many places together. And they also were part of a trade route. So they have all these foreigners coming in and leaving their city and, and trading and then going back out again. And, and these Thessalonians said, we believe in one God. I know you believe in many, but we only believe in one. And we want to tell you all about him. We're living for him. And the profound message they gave to the world was stunning. And Paul says, I'm so thankful that you're not giving in to society's pressures to say that there's many gods. I'm thankful for you. Are you thankful? Do you believe in but one God? Are you hanging on to many? In antiquity, superstition held so very many of them. So many people ultimately believed that the favor of the gods ultimately was only dependent on what you did for them. But they knew better. The Thessalonians said, I know that what's going to happen to me, sometimes it's going to be easy and sometimes it's going to be difficult. But I know in my heart, beyond a shadow of a doubt, my God reigns. My God's sovereign. Do you believe that? I know it's hard to do that, isn't it, in today's society? Today, actually, most people believe that there might be a God, but nobody knows who that God is, and nobody can identify that God. Or other people believe there just isn't a God. You know what? Many people believe there's more than one way to get to heaven, and some people, frankly, just don't care because they feel after they die, they cease to exist. People have so many different thoughts and ideas today. I think part of that is because they're interconnected through the internet and through television. We, we got so much exposure to so many different points of view that in the end, we tend not to believe in many things because we don't know what is true and what's not. Is that where you're at? Because the Thessalonians stood up amidst all that and said, I know the truth and the truth has set me free. Do you know the truth? The next thing Paul goes on, he says, I am so thankful that your witness, the way you're living your life, is profound. In other words, he's trying to say, you are not chameleons of your society. You don't look like the people around you. You don't act like the people around you. You don't believe in the things they believe in. You stand out distinct and as a light unto all the nations. You are different. Paul was thankful, thank, thankful that the Thessalonians weren't sitting back saying, I believe in idols. They turned from all their idols and they believed in the living true God. They stopped worshiping the emperor Caesar. They stopped worshiping the various gods such as Isis or Zeus and many others. And their common everyday life, they proved ultimately they loved the Lord beyond all measure. No matter what, no matter what the cost, no matter how many people hated them, they still loved the Lord. Well, idols provided the Thessalonians with a uh, perceived sense of security and significance. The Thessalonians that believed in the Lord said, you know what? The truth is, is that your idols are nothing. They're made of stone, as you can see in the picture. They're made of wood. They're made of iron. They actually don't exist. They can't help you in any way, shape, or form. And Paul says, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ that you have faith that the God that you cannot see is the only God that exists. I thank God for your faith. I thank God for you. 
I thank God, ultimately, Paul goes on and says that I thank him that you've learned to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God for all the wonderful things, all the things that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God that you become a model. The way you live your life for Jesus is a model to the people that are around you. And people are noticing and they're looking right through you. They're not looking at you. They're looking at that what they see in you. Jesus, they can see the light. They can see that you're born again. And I thank God that you're being a great witness, Macedonia, Achaia, and way beyond. Thank the Lord. Their profound transformation, you know, had been so true and so genuine that the people couldn't stop but ask why, how, what's going on? Consumed by the pursuit of societal idols, investing in their passions, energy, emotions, finances, and absolutely everything else is the way all the people were doing. They're putting all their money and their emotions into idols that didn't exist. And these Thessalonians were standing up and saying, I, I actually love Jesus and only Jesus. And he's the only God that exists. Let me tell you about it. But it doesn't just stop there. The Thessalonians learned something very important. How do we become righteous? Well, first and foremost, you got to ask Jesus Christ into your heart. You have to be born again. You can't be righteous any other way. The truth is, the wage of sin is death. And nobody's going to come to God the Father in heaven except through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So that's the very first thing that you have to do. Step number one is to make sure that you are born again. That's how you become righteous. Now, the question is, but how do you stay righteous? How do you be like Job? Remember in the Bible, it says Job was righteous in God's sight. How do you become righteous in God's sight? Well, certainly by being born again. But how do you stay righteous in God's sight? It's by repentance. We all sin and we keep on sinning. And the only way that we can ultimately stay in God's grace, and he looks at us and says, oh, by the way, I'm looking at you and you're doing a really good job. And I am not holding anything against you whatsoever because you're sinless and blameless in my sight. How can I be holy in front of you, God? How can that be possible? And the answer is through repentance. See, God has made a mechanism. He said, if you ask to be forgiven, you will be. The Thessalonians, Paul saying, I am so thankful that every day you're asking the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. You are being washed as white as snow. And as a result of that, your witness is absolutely stunning and profound. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He goes on and he says this. Paul says, it's not, even though it's not popular in his time, and it's certainly not popular in our time, Paul says, I thank God that you won't be judged. Now, I want to clarify that. All Christians will be judged, of course, for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But I thank God that when, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, you will be one of the sheep. You will not be sent to hell, but you'll be sent to heaven. I thank God for that. Do you thank God for that? Do you thank God that you have a home with him in heaven? Do you thank God that the judge of the living and the dead is going to come back and say, you know what, you're coming to me to be with heaven absolutely forever? Do you thank God that even if you die before the Lord returns, that you will come up from the grave and you will go up and you'll soar up into the heavens and you'll join with all other people, all other Christians, and Jesus will accept you as his own. Do you thank him for that? We should thank him every day for our salvation. We should thank him that we will not have to go through the wrath that the non-Christians will go through. You know what? The truth is that Paul here, he doesn't outline all the things about the end times. He just says, 
Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that they're saved. And thank you, they won't face your wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christ who ascended up into heaven and God who exalted him to his right hand in the heavenly helms has, has basically bought his children at the price of his own very life. He has sealed every born-again believer with the Holy Spirit. That means that when the Lord returns, the Holy Spirit is the seal saying that, yes, we are God's children. And that's awesome. We're guaranteed eternal life. We're guaranteed even amidst tribulations. And difficulties and pain and suffering. We are guaranteed he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always hold on to us. He will give us the grace, mercy, and passion that we need in order to thrive. Even in difficult times. Even in the face of persecution. We can feel incredible, unspeakable, undeniable joy. God gives us all that and so much more. And Paul says, I thank God. What are you thankful for? I mean, think about it for a moment. It's easy to go one day to the next and not thank God for much of anything. The truth is we like to be self-sufficient. The truth is, is that we really don't want to sit back and say, a sovereign God controls everything that happens around me. We really want to be in charge of things, but the truth is, is that we're not. And I'm so thankful that God, you know, the truth is, has spent time with each and every one of us and loves us and cares for us. At the funerals, we often learn. Every funeral that we go to, from dust you are, dust you shall return. We soon realize that the one who created us sustains us. And when it comes our time, he'll take us home to be with him. We soon learn that it's not about accumulating things or stuff or money or fame or power. It's all about serving Jesus and living for him. We store treasures in heaven by doing the things that he wants us to do. And when our good deeds point to God the Father in heaven, that's how we store treasures up in heaven in the first place. Those who ultimately sit back and say, I want to serve God, so I don't understand that. All they want is a whole bunch of homage, blind worship, and in the end, they're not even existent. The gods don't exist. Only God does. We are called to worship but one God who created the heavens and the earth, both things seen and unseen. God's in control of all those things. And though we do not deserve it, God loves us. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. He loves us very dearly. And like the Thessalonians, our hearts can't be just for riches. I am thankful the Lord has given me a home. I'm very thankful. I'm thankful the Lord has given me more food than I could ever eat. I am very thankful for that. I am thankful I live in North America where basically we're free and we don't have to worry about wars. Not for now, anyway. I'm thankful for that. But more importantly... I'm thankful that Jesus loves me, cares for me, died for me, rose again for me. And because of my faith in him, in his atoning sacrifice, I'm especially thankful I get to go home and be with him. I hope you feel the same way. I'm thankful when the judge of the living and the dead arrives that I won't be judged that way. I, he won't look at me and say, oh, I got to flip a coin and decide whether you go to heaven or hell. He's going to say, because I see the seal of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you're going to heaven. Praise the Lord for that. I'm thankful for that. Are you? Let us stand firm in our faith then. Let us sit back even in the face of persecution. Keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and let us smile with everything we have, with all the passion that we could possibly muster and say, thank you, Lord, for saving a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for all you've done for me. And all you will do for me in the future. I thank you because I don't deserve a single bit of it. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ.
Amen and amen.